Welcome to Distressed Situations, a Reed Smith podcast. On this podcast, we cover current issues in financial restructuring over a wide variety of industries. I'm Keith Arzeda, a partner in Reed Smith's Global Restructuring and Insolvency Group, and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast. Whether your company is a financial institution or in industry, we hope our commentary will be useful in managing the risks associated with distress. If you have any questions about our topics, feel free to contact our speakers. Hi, I'm Kathleen Garrett. I'm a partner in the restructuring and insolvency team in Reed Smith, London. We believe it's important that you know your options and we're keen to share some of our thinking. Today, I'm going to consider restructuring trends and themes in the context of the aviation sector. By way of preliminary comment, I think it's worth noting that every crisis is different. The COVID-related one, which we've experienced since March 2020, is one characterised by governmental and central bank supports for business, restriction on use of certain of the typical restructuring techniques. Indeed, some of them have been amended to ease and lengthen them and adapt to some requirements for COVID, and some have not been capable of being used. New ones have been introduced in varying jurisdictions, including England. The reaction has also included obvious furlough for staff, and all of this has combined to result in lesser use of formal restructuring procedures. For the scale of the impact on business, the use of formal restructuring procedures is low. This is really a function of what was and is a global pandemic of indefinite duration. So we didn't know how long or how severe the impact was going to be, and consequently, it was difficult to define the type of restructure required to deal with a moving target that we didn't know when it was going to end. And the various governmental, central bank and other supports and protections available have delayed the requirement for this restructuring. However, I would say at the beginning of this year, we began to see the start of a greater requirement for advice as a prelude to a greater use of the procedures. And this obviously has been accelerated since the various sanctions which have been imposed as a result of the invasion of Ukraine. So I think the second preliminary point I want to make is just to reference the quote that someone somewhere said, there are decades where nothing happens and then there are weeks where decades happen. And I think we probably will look back over the last 10 or 15 years and reflect that really an awful lot happened. Global financial crisis in 2009, COVID allied with the effectiveness of Brexit in 2020, and then 2022, war with sanctions. And that has created a very unusual backdrop, I would say, of opposites. We see high inflation, supply chain issues as a result of impact of COVID furlough and various disruptions, high interest rates on the way, possibly, accelerated digitalization through COVID, protectionist policies at governmental levels, retrenchment from globalization probably started pre-COVID. And at the same time, we see a wall of private money chasing opportunities to deploy. As I've said, governmental supports, which had been in place since 2020, are now beginning to be removed. And the importance and rise of ESG and addressing global warming and sustainability in a real fashion, living with COVID and the impact of war on people and prices. So it is truly a time of opposites. 
Looking now to the topic at issue, which is aviation restructuring. So again, I think preliminary comment in this context is that while there have been lesser use of procedures, nonetheless, we have seen use of procedures. These include Chapter 11, US debtor in possession, moratorium-based procedure, highly adaptable procedure in terms of outcome and in terms of duration. English scheme of arrangement, English restructuring plan. We've also seen in Asia, Malaysian scheme of arrangement. Indeed, other examples include Norwegian restructuring proceedings and Irish examinership and scheme of arrangement, as well as Australian administration. I think at a high level, we can say the dominance of Chapter 11 continues, especially for airlines and also more recently for aviation leasing companies where lessors are subject to the protection mechanism. I think. It is also true to say that since 2018, in around, we've begun to see a trend of use of local procedures, so more creative use of local procedures. And examples of this, I think we could cite Weatherford, where we had a Chapter 11, parallel Irish examinership, provisional liquidation in Bermuda. Petroceltic, where we saw Irish examinership and, and various techniques used across a global group. And I think that is also mirrored through what we have seen through COVID. We look at some of the cases in, in, in more detail shortly. So in terms of outcomes, the range of solutions being sought aren't particularly different in the COVID-related crisis to before. However, What we did see was some business models fundamentally challenged in terms of the switch off of cash flow, and some business models didn't accommodate sufficiently deep equity and capital bases to sustain some businesses through the length of the crisis, global pandemic of indefinite duration. At the early part of 2020, we saw some businesses needing the simple protection from creditors and stay usually a stay of a longer duration. So short duration procedures were less attractive, again, because they may not be the sufficient fix. We also saw informal restructurings, consensual arrangements reached, and sometimes a stepping stone approach adopted to sort of see how long the impact lasted and see if it was possible to adapt and step from stone to stone in in, in terms of finding a path through the challenges. Debt write-downs, clearly very important. Debt to equity, a necessity in terms of getting support of creditors. Requirement for new capital, an absolute, where business models fundamentally challenged. Reinstatement of debt, alteration of terms of debt, waivers, deferrals, certainly in the early part of the crisis, through to amendments, longer-term amendments and altered pricing. Cash is king, so cash pooling, cash sweeping, collateral over cash, all very important, as was contract repudiation, where there was a clear need for businesses not just to rebase their levels of debt, but also to refocus business, which of necessity would entail extraction from certain contracts. Obviously, investor and creditor return high on the agenda of those investing or those agreeing to a debt to equity. And then in terms of aircraft particular assets, repossession of aircraft, an issue, performance on leases. Unusually in COVID, having a lessee that actually paid rent as opposed to having aircraft unused, albeit that the rentals weren't being paid in full, more attractive sometimes than repudiation. But nonetheless, repudiation was relatively high on the agenda in certain scenarios. 
Next topic that sort of came to the fore during COVID was pre and post Brexit jurisdiction and cross border recognition. We had a fundamental shift in that exit arrangements resulted in the UK not having access to certain of the mutual recognition and coordination across Europe on insolvency procedures. In an aviation context, we also had the overlay of the Cape Town Convention regulating aircraft assets, including aircraft and aircraft subject to leases and related security. A key issue which has arisen in restructuring in the aviation sector is whether the Cape Town Convention applies to the relevant restructuring procedure. A brief word on Cape Town before we consider whether Cape Town applies to relevant restructuring procedures. Three main points to note here. Firstly, in terms of the application of Cape Town. Cape Town is a convention on international interests in mobile equipment. Its overall aim was to reduce cost and increase availability of finance. Both Cape Town itself contains insolvency provisions, as well as the related aircraft protocol, or or protocol as it's sometimes known, where at Article 11, there are two options of more detailed insolvency provisions, Alternative A and Alternative B. In terms of the application of Cape Town, contracting states need to adopt the convention and when doing so, also need to elect whether to apply the aircraft protocol or not. And if so, apply alternative A or alternative B and choose a waiting period, which I'll come to in a minute. Firstly, there's the step as to whether the Cape Town Convention applies and if so, whether the contracting state has elected to apply the insolvency provisions of alternative A or B, which are contained in the aircraft protocol. Second point, if alternative A applies, then the insolvency provisions of Cape Town are triggered by the occurrence of an insolvency-related event, which largely distills down to insolvency proceedings. And the term is defined to include liquidation, bankruptcy and reorganisation measures. The third point on Cape Town to note is its implication. So at a high level, the insolvency provisions of Cape Town are significantly different from and conflict with the insolvency laws of most jurisdictions. So it's important to note that. The two key implications of the application of the insolvency provisions of Cape Town are firstly, that it imposes a long stop date of typically 60 days, after which time the defaulting debtor either needs to cure all defaults and agree to perform future obligations or to give possession of the aircraft back to the creditor. The second key implication is that no obligations of the debtor under the agreement, which is broadly the lease agreement, for example, in an aviation situation and the aircraft mortgage, no provision of those agreements can be modified without consent of the creditor. It's relevant to highlight these two key implications, because clearly they could present difficulties in implementing the terms of restructures, which often might involve modifications to relevant agreements. So to conclude on Cape Town, it's always relevant to consider, firstly, does it apply, in that you need to consider whether the contracting state of the place where the debtor has its main interest and main insolvency proceeding has adopted Cape Town, and if so, whether it's adopted the insolvency provisions contained therein. Secondly, if it applies, an assessment needs to be conducted as to whether the relevant insolvency proceedings in the particular case trigger the and fall within the insolvency provisions of Cape Town. 
we're going to consider judicial consideration of that in a minute. And thirdly, where alternative A insolvency provisions of the Cape Town Conventions apply, they are generally at odds with local insolvency provisions in many jurisdictions. And importantly, they provide for return of aircraft and compliance provisions outside of a waiting period, and they contain restrictions on modifications on relevant agreements. So returning now to consider what indications we have from courts of what insolvency procedures are considered to trigger the insolvency provisions of the Cape Town Convention. And when I reference Cape Town Convention, I do mean the insolvency provisions in alternative A of the protocol to the Cape Town Convention. We now are beginning to have a body of case law which gives guidance on this, but there is some distance to go in having clarity. In relation to the English scheme of arrangement, this has typically been considered not to be an insolvency process or proceeding. However, the point as to whether the English scheme of arrangement falls within the Cape Town Convention was considered, but not expressly ruled on by Snowden in the MAB leasing decision in February 2021. While not included in the written judgment, orally the judge indicated that there were strong reasons to believe that an English scheme of arrangement does not amount to an insolvency-related event for the purposes of Cape Town, which is the relevant definition, in particular because the debtor was not subject to the control or supervision of the court. In relation to an Irish scheme of arrangement, which operates on a very similar basis to an English scheme of arrangement, again, there is no express decision of the Irish courts. It has, however, been referenced in the Nordic Aviation Capital uh, Scheme of Arrangement judgment of Mr Justice Barneval in July 2020, where the judge indicated that it was not necessary to consider the point because none of the scheme creditors, in particular none of the secured creditors, were opposing the scheme or relying on potential rights under Cape Town. And as a result, it was unnecessary to consider the point. However, he did advert to the fact that had it applied, it could have caused some difficulties in relation to implementing some of the elements comprised in the scheme. The judge noted that there were a small number of secured creditors in number and value that did not vote, but as they'd received comprehensive documents and had ample opportunities to participate in meetings and indeed attend and vote against at the sanction hearing, which they did not do, on that basis, he did not feel it was necessary to consider the point. So that's English and Irish schemes of arrangement, no decision, informal indication from the English courts that the English scheme does not constitute an insolvency-related event, referencing the requisite control or supervision of the court not being present. Next, we have the Malaysian scheme of arrangement, which was considered by the High Court of Malaysia in the Air Asian scheme of arrangement. And in that case, the court expressed the view that the scheme was an insolvency proceeding for the purposes of Cape Town and Alternative A. Reference was made to the previous two cases, the MAB leasing for the English scheme of arrangement, the Nordic Aviation Capital case for the Irish scheme of arrangement, and the Virgin Atlantic restructuring plan case, which I'll come to in a minute, noting the absence of a decision. Reference was made to the Cape Town academic project, and in particular, the annotation one to it, and opinions obtained by the Aviation Working Group. These broadly support a scheme falling within the definition of an insolvency-related event and therefore being subject to the Cape Town Convention. And there was some disagreement expressed by the judge in relation to commentary on the fact that 
possibly there wasn't the necessary control or supervision of the court exercised by a scheme to meet the threshold for it to fall within an insolvency-related event for the purposes of Cape Town. I'll come to that in a minute. So far, we've got English and Irish scheme, no decision by the relevant courts with a hint in favour of it, certainly an English scheme, not being an insolvency-related event and not being subject to Cape Town. With the Malaysian scheme of arrangement, a different direction of travel. And as the Malaysian scheme is quite similar to the English scheme, we have a certain indication of a fork in the road. Looking then at the UK restructuring plan, again, no decision. However, there is a possible signpost that this may be going in favour of a UK restructuring plan being considered to be an insolvency-related event in relation to a non-aviation case, the Gage Group. And again, not in relation to Cape Town because Cape Town didn't apply. But in that case, it was considered whether the restructuring plan was fell within essentially the bankruptcy exclusion for the purposes of the Lugano Convention. And the bankruptcy exclusion requires the proceeding, so the restructuring plan, to be a bankruptcy proceeding relating to the winding up of an insolvent company. So quite similar and analogous to an insolvency-related event for the purposes of Cape Town. The key issue was whether the control or supervision by the court of the appropriate nature and level of the debtor's assets and affairs was considered to be the key issue there, rather than the assets and affairs of the company being subject to the court control. So the direction of travel in Gate Group was similar to that in the Malaysian Statement of Affairs in the context of the AirAsia case. A key element of the Gate Group decision was the fact that the restructuring plan only applies if the company has encountered or is likely to encounter financial difficulties that are affecting or will or may affect its ability to carry on business as a going concern. So the fact that intrinsically within the UK restructuring plan, insolvency has happened or is expected had a clear bearing on the direction of travel there. In another context, Irish examinership, which is a debtor in possession, moratorium-based process with an examiner appointed to examine the affairs and see if a scheme of arrangement can be proposed to facilitate the survival of the company and its undertaking as a going concern. In the context of the Norwegian Air Shuttle decision of Quinn Jay, there were no objections raised to examinership being considered to be an insolvency-related event for the purpose of the Cape Town Convention. And there's some useful dicta, which we'll come to shortly in this context. Chapter 11, interestingly, the Cape Town Convention has not been adopted in the US. And the question of whether a US bankruptcy court in the context of a Chapter 11 will apply Cape Town and Alternative A, where the subject debtor is incorporated in a jurisdiction which has adopted. So overall, interesting that when the matter has come to court, we've seen as part of restructuring processes, a great effort made to get a very high level of creditor approval, certainly in the MAB leasing and the Nordic Aviation Capital schemes of arrangement in England and Ireland, respectively, such that it wasn't necessary for the court to consider the point. Malaysian schemes of arrangement are going in the opposite direction, Cape Town possibly applying. UK restructuring plan indication by analogy with Gate Group and the Lugano Convention, with the intrinsic involvement of insolvency in a restructuring plan, direction travel there in favour of Cape Town applying. Irish examinership appears to be accepted that it does apply, Chapter 11 undecided. Just to finish, in terms of the Cape Town academic project and the annotation referred to earlier, the key to the application of Cape Town is whether the relevant process is insolvency proceedings. 
and Roy Good as part of this Cape Town academic project and as an annotation to the convention has expressed the view that reorganization arrangements, which would include schemes of arrangement, fall within the definition where they are formulated, one, in an insolvency context or by reason of actual or anticipated financial difficulties of the debtor company, and two, collective in that they are concluded on behalf of creditors generally or such classes of creditors as collectively represent a substantial part of the indebtedness. As an ancillary point, Professor Good has expressed the view that the question of whether proceeding for a restructuring of debt or equity fall within Cape Town was to be determined by the definition of insolvency proceedings in Cape Town and not by reference to national law. And such proceedings would fall within the definition if they fall within the aforementioned two-stage process involving an insolvency context, anticipating actual or, or, or real financial difficulties and collective as described. An alternative view has been expressed by Professor Payne, and it echoes the indication that was already given in the Mab leasing case in relation to the issue that it does not deal with the requirement that the court has control or supervision of the company's assets or affairs, and the nature of the statement, the scheme of arrangement, that that control or supervision isn't of a requisite standard. The second point which Professor Payne has aired is that the annotations and views of Professor Good, as outlined above, have no official standing or are not part of the Cape Town Convention. So it does leave it open for courts to go in varying directions in this respect, but helpful that we have a general sense of some of the directions of travel and some of the issues. So to conclude, with 10 key takeaway points from this podcast, grouped in threes, as follows. The first group of three broadly is the scorecard on court consideration of insolvency procedures that come within the insolvency provisions of Cape Town. So the first point is, if the insolvency provisions of Cape Town apply, this can make a restructuring quite difficult because a long stop date, typically 60 days, but ultimately it's one which is selected by the relevant country which exceeds to Cape Town for the debtor either to cure and confirm compliance in future in relation to the relevant agreements or to give possession of the aircraft, coupled with a restriction on making any modifications to the agreements. Secondly, there's clearly a trend in some restructurings to date during the COVID period of voiding the need for the court in the relevant insolvency proceeding to consider the application of Cape Town and these provisions, which could be problematic to the restructuring, through getting a high level of creditor approval, in particular secured creditor approval. Finally, the scorecard on certain insolvency procedures is as follows. Scheme of arrangement, an English or an Irish one, no decision, however some indication that it's not an insolvency procedure through court decisions. Malaysian scheme of arrangement, yes, it is an insolvency proceeding and does come within Cape Town. We also have two commentators on opposite sides of the fence and a key issue appearing to be the requisite control and oversight of the court in relation to the process as being the determining factor. However, we can expect to hear more on this from the courts. Next, the English restructuring plan. There is no decision on this, but the indication are that it is likely to be an insolvency proceeding 
and subject to the insolvency provisions of Cape Town. Examinership, Irish courts have operated on the basis that it is within the Cape Town insolvency provisions. And, and equally in relation to an insolvent Australian administration, it also appears to be subject to the Cape Town insolvency provisions. The second grouping of points comes under the heading repudiation, which is obviously has been high on the agenda in certain restructurings. Firstly, no modification of agreements to which Alternative A of the Cape Town Convention applies can occur. However, termination under applicable laws can and has been sanctioned by varying courts, including with extraterritorial effect and including termination of contracts governed under laws other than the home. Modification of agreements subject to Alternative A of Cape Town is not permitted, however termination is, and courts have sanctioned this under applicable provisions with extraterritorial effect across a range of contracts governed by varying laws. Secondly, the restriction on modification applies to agreements, which in an aviation context particularly includes lease agreements and aircraft mortgages. It remains an open question as to whether it extends to the loan agreement or guarantee, which may be the obligation which is secured by the security created by the mortgage. Thirdly, on termination, the resulting damages which may be awarded can be written down as part of the relevant restructuring process. And we have seen this power used in relation to leases, ground handling agreements and purchase contracts. The third group of takeaways relate to possession and getting possession of aircraft under Alternative A. Firstly, the debtor or insolvency administrator must preserve the aircraft until possession is returned to the creditor. Secondly, there's nothing in Cape Town Convention which precludes the lessor or the holder of security from exercising self-help remedies or taking possession of the aircraft. Thirdly, in returning possession of the aircraft, the rules which apply are not the provisions of the contract which apply on the return of the aircraft on termination of the lease. And in particular, any rules or implied terms around commercial reasonableness do not apply where the termination provisions are used on insolvency to terminate the relevant agreements. It's important to note that liens are not required to be discharged by the insolvency administrator as part of a termination which can obviously enhance the cost and minimise the return to the creditor taking back possession of the aircraft. Final point on possession is that it remains to be seen if distinctions are drawn between on and off lease aircraft and performing and non-performing leased aircraft. And I think this is a point to be watched. Last point, last takeaway is the importance of knowing the options and we here at Reed Smith will be delighted to assist in developing these. Thank you. Distressed Situations is a Reed Smith production. Our producer is Ali McArdle. For more information about Reed Smith's restructuring and insolvency practice, please email distressedsituations at reedsmith.com. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, reedsmith.com, and on our social media accounts at Reed Smith LLP on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter.
This podcast is provided for educational purposes. It does not constitute legal advice and is not intended to establish an attorney-client relationship, nor is it intended to suggest or establish standards of care applicable to particular lawyers in any given situation. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Any views, opinions, or comments made by any external guest speaker are not to be attributed to Reed Smith LLP or its individual lawyers. All rights reserved.